welcome to Humans of Magic, the show where I get into the minds of some of the world's best magic players and personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. I love telling stories, and I love learning from other people. In this series, my guests and I talk about Magic the Gathering, but the game is just a starting point. It is 100% focused on the guests themselves. This is a place where I can highlight their passions, interests, and stories. You'll hear less talk about magic-specific strategy and more talk about what my guests have learned over the years. I hope that you will enjoy these free-flowing conversations. Today on Humans and Magic, I'm talking to Mike Turian. Mike is a Magic Hall of Famer and has been called one of the top limited players in the history of the Pro Tour. Over his illustrious Magic career, he's had incredible success with five Pro Tour top eights, one of which he's won, and six GP top eights, two of which he's actually won. He started playing Magic in high school with The Dark, and after his careers as a Magic player has ended, he's worked at Wizards of the Coast since 2004 with R&D, Organized Play, Technology, Magic Online, and Magic Duels teams. So in part one of this interview, we'll be talking about the early days of Magic for Mike. Growing up as a kid in Pittsburgh, playing in his first competitive tournaments for the first time, and running into some folks who he later became great teammates with, people like Randy Bueller, amongst many, many others. In part two, we'll be focusing more on the time that Mike has spent at Wizards of the Coast, creating cards such as Jace the Mind Sculptor, launching Planeswalker points as part of organized play, and some of the lessons and experiences and stories that he's had over the years working for Wizards. So I really enjoyed this interview with Mike because he was extremely honest and went deep into some of the, the topics. And just as someone who doesn't work for Wizards, it's also very refreshing to hear about some of the things that are very positive going on in the organization. Without further ado, let's start things off with part one. So today I am here with Mike Turian. Mike, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I'm super excited to have you on the show today just to talk about uh, all things magic and particularly with you. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So what's been going on with you lately? I mean, how, how's, life, <laughs> how's life been? I know it's kind of the first time we, we talk, but uh, how, how are things going for you in the past uh, couple of weeks and months? Oh, well, I'm... I'm uh, going pretty well. I just celebrated Father's Day with uh, uh, with my family yesterday, and you know, I I think um, if I was in that the, the Bill Murray movie Groundhog's Day, I, I think yesterday would be a good day to choose to uh, uh, to play again and again. You know, we just uh, it, it's the one day of the year where my wife uh, seems to agree with everything I say, and I, I really appreciate that. So. But the other 364 days, maybe not so much, but, uh, you know, we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great a great day to uh, to stay locked in on. Um, is your uh, so your your father correct? Yeah, yeah, I have two kids. Um, yeah. Okay, how old are they? Uh, I have a four year old and a one year old, uh, and so yeah, I've had uh, they haven't neither one are playing Magic yet. Um, oh, that Lucy, was my next question. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured it was going there. Uh, Lucy has held a Stoneforge Mystic. I think that was the first uh, uh, first Magic cards that she held. Uh, I don't think Theo has held one yet. Although now Lucy's also opened a booster pack, uh, and she got a dragon, um, and so she was she was running around with a dragon for uh, quite some time. Although ma- uh, Magic cards and four year olds really don't mix that well they they tend to get a, a little smushed and crinkled and uh so but I, i'm sure she'll open plenty more booster packs as uh as she grows up yeah i imagine you must have a lot of cards lying around at home right <laughs> yeah i have i have a lot of a lot of cards at home a lot of cards at work um i've been thinking about getting a storage unit uh and for pl- some more placing some more cards you know, I mean, one of the things I've appreciated about working on uh, uh, the Magic Digital uh, offerings is it's uh, storing your collections a lot easier. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think the analogy I would make on my end is like Kindle, right? Like I used to buy a lot of physical books, and now I can get them all on a on the cloud or on a reader. I think that's really really saves me a lot of space as well. So uh, I can I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it, Magic cards are the same way, right? You just end up with bookshelves and. And storage shelves and uh, so much. I, I remember when I was moving from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to take the job out here uh, in Seattle. Um, and at the time, I was coming to work uh, in Magic R and D. And so I just, you know, I'm packing all all of my belongings in my car. And I, I would say probably 80% of what I brought to Seattle were Magic cards. You know, I mean, I had a little bit of clothes and you know, a few other things, but mainly it was just, you know, emptying my closets and my shelves of magic cards. Oh, yeah. Uh, you must have quite a collection, correct? Yeah, oh, totally. I, I think that, um, yeah, I don't, I don't even know how many thousands of cards uh, I've, I've had, and, you know, it just, just pack, packing them all up and organizing them, it's always been... It's always been such a challenge. Uh, you know, before uh, before Magic cards had rarity, uh, the color symbols and the rarity, uh, and before because you know, and also before they had expansion, uh, the expansion symbols on the on the type line of the card. I, I mean, I just had uh, so many cards I couldn't even keep them organized. I, you know, and people would come in and try to organize them, but they wouldn't even realize that. Oh, even though that this card doesn't have the gold color uh, for a rare, mm-hmm. that no, actually that card's pretty important, and you know this tropical island does not go in the common pile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a mistake. You'll be like, oh my goodness, the tropical island is is uh, is with a stack of commons, and I can't find it anymore, and my my mom threw it away. Uh, no, that's that. I guess that's speaking from personal experience so I, I won't i won't go there <laughs> right no but, but that that's exactly it right you just have to uh yeah because when i started playing magic i you know i was only uh i was only 14 and so i was living at uh i was living at home with my parents going to high school of course and yeah i mean having my you know protecting my cards for my mom was definitely uh, a big challenge in and of themselves because 
you know, from her perspective, she just sees them all over the place. And, you know, they can't be important if they're just sitting in piles on my on my dresser. So maybe it's time to clear clean things up a little bit. And, you know, the trash can, I think, was a, a go-to choice for cleaning. But <laughs> I, 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 I made sure to let her know, no, no, let's... Let's not throw away any uh, any magic cards. That's you know m- maybe some of my other stuff. Do you, do you <laughs> have any particularly memorable cards that she may have disposed of that if you look back you'd be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I don't longer have that card and it's gone you know, now. Well, I, I, I definitely uh, at, at times have lost uh, cards. Like I know I used to own some Beta Plateaus um, and. Uh, you know, I think they maybe were stolen or, or some such, or they got misplaced. Who knows? But um, I don't. If my mom did throw away anything, uh, I wouldn't even know what it was. You know, I mean, there was just there really were so many cards, and uh, you know, in in the moment, it's it's not like I went and you know reached into the trash and pulled them out. I just didn't even realize they were being tossed out. So right. Right. Let, 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 let's let's hope uh, let's hope for both our sakes that you know we we didn't lose too many too many magic cards to uh, errant cleaning uh, trips by our family. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I hope not. Um, but let's start at the beginning, Mike. So you had mentioned that you did you grow up in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, that's you know I, I lived there all my life. Um, uh, until I was, I think, I moved out to Seattle in 2004. So I lived in Pittsburgh uh, from the, basically a year after I was born until I was 25. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your, your childhood. Were you an only child? Did you have siblings? No, I have one sister. Um, and, you know, we just grew up in a suburb of uh, Pittsburgh. Um, my my whole family uh, lived in Pittsburgh. You know my my parents, my grandparents, uh, my cousin Nate Heiss, who uh, worked for Wizards for uh, some number of years and also played on the Pro Tour. Um, yeah, and so you know I'm I'm I grew up in Pittsburgh and I cheer for all the Pittsburgh sports teams even even still. Um, so I was excited that the Penguins won the Stanley Cup just uh, just last week here and. And hopefully the uh, the Steelers will go win the Super Bowl uh, this year because you know, I def- definitely football's uh, in terms of the sports that that's my favorite sport. Okay, so can I take it that a lot of folks in the area were very religious about football? Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things I love about Pittsburgh is it kind of has a big town feel, but also a small town feel. And one of the you know, it's it's like oh, it's big enough to have sports teams, but you know, sports are really what it's all about. You know, and that love of that love of competition and uh, everyone getting together on Sundays and having, uh, you know, going tailgating or just getting together and watching the game. Um, and e- even still, I mean, you know, I have a Steelers license plate on my car, and I'll get people just coming up to me and uh, you know, letting me know that they're a Steelers fan or when I'm wearing a Steelers hoodie. Uh, out and about, you know, and, and just really, really big time sports fans and really big time Steeler fans. Awesome. So, I'm wondering, what was your first earliest gaming experience? Was there something that you did before you discovered Magic at 14? Uh, well, I mean, like my first, first 
uh, I tell you, the first time I had um, like the first computer game I remember playing, uh, I remember playing on a Commodore 64. I got it uh, as a present, and I think I was maybe five or six years old. And I think the game was um, Oil's Well was the name of the game. It was basically kind of like uh, one of those snake games where you you have a, a pipe and you go out and you munch pellets, right, which were oil droplets, I guess, and you couldn't cross over your own line or uh, that's how you, that's how you would lose, uh, lose the game. So I remember at like five or six playing that, um, playing like Tecmo Bowl, uh, you know, my, my friend also had like, a, I think an Intellivision, uh, and so there were some sports games on there. And, and I tell you, I don't know if it's a nostalgia or what, but I, I just really loved uh, loved a lot of those games. I loved um, like NHL 93, um, 94, right? Because I had a Sega Genesis a little later on. Um, in terms of board games or card games, uh, the first board game I remember really uh, falling in love with, it wasn't the first one I played, but uh, playing Access and Allies with my dad. Uh, I just, you know, it, it, I, I just remember us spending hours and hours, not necessarily on the same day, but over the course of days, um, and you know, and just just play rolling ro rolling dice and and reenacting the the World War II scenarios of the game, um, and that that was always so much fun. And you know, one of the things I loved about uh, while I was in uh, research and development at Wizards. Uh, we actually were working on and have since now published the uh, the anniversary edition of Axis and Allies. And while I wasn't on like official development teams, just being able to play test and give my input uh, and work with uh, the creators of the game, you know, that was uh, really meaningfully, really meaningful for me professionally. Just because you know, remembering back to when uh, uh, playing those with my dad and just you know, one of my favorite games. Yeah, Axis and Allies was great. I used to play that a lot in high school with my buddies, and we would spend just the whole day strategizing, and it seemed like the Axis would always win, but, uh, I'm sorry, the Allies would always win once you had a particular strategy, but then we started getting into mind gaming each other, and it became this really, really elaborate thing. Even though the game itself was quite simple by war game standards, it was a really great game, and, and we played a heck of it, so I can totally relate to your your experiences with the game there and yeah <laughs> yeah no totally yeah I mean yeah it, it is just such a fun game and I love the you know it seemed like one of the things you were hinting at there was sort of the epic the epic nature of it right and you know it's just always like those strategies or the in the tactics within the strategies always just uh, appealed to me uh, so much and just thinking about like okay how am I gonna how am I going to go and take these territories, right? And oh, where am I leaving myself open for counterattack? And will will they see that? And just all of those uh, interplays were, uh, you know, I, I really really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. And you realize that it's a game of sort of trade offs, and you you can't be completely uh, fortified in all positions. You have to kind of, uh, at, yeah. That was that was anyway. It was a really well designed game. Uh, but but going back a little bit. What, what was the first game that you remember being competitive in? Was it the first one that you just started playing with your friends, or was it was there a particular one that sort of got your competitive juices flowing? Well, I mean, growing up, I was uh, really good friends. Uh, my best friend, his name was Evan, and Evan and I were uh, pretty well matched at games, 
And so it really meant that like everything that we played, we were you know just competitive at, right? We played a lot of like one on one v one style games, right? Much like uh, uh, the way I play Magic typically. And so uh, that would mean if we were playing, you know, uh, Madden or I mentioned NHL, um, like trivia games, like I think it was maybe like You Don't Know Jack uh, was uh, one I remember playing a bunch. Just, you know, we, we would always be playing these uh, 1v1 um, style games. Like even, even like Monopoly, you know, it's like, oh, we'd play Monopoly and we would just play it the two of us. And because, you know, I mean, basically every day after school, uh, we would get together and on weekends we would get together and it was always just the two of us so we would always just be playing uh, you know the, the 1v1 games were uh, what we played because you know what I mean I, I think at the time like cooperative games maybe existed but they certainly weren't nearly as popular and so just everything that was offered was okay you know I'm red and you're blue and we're battling versus each other right that was just a very typical uh, set up for these games. Right. Do you remember any really heated moments when you were playing with Evan? Um, man, heated moments. Well, I, I, I mean, it was always, I, I think the time, you know, I always felt like his strategy in Madden was unfair or, or I don't know, not really unfair. Not, not sporting, I guess maybe is a, a good way to put it, right? Where it's like, oh, I would play, you know, Pittsburgh Steeler type football, right? I'd be running the ball and short passes and trying to control the clock. And then he would just be throwing Hail Marys, which was a plenty good strategy. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, looking back on it, I, I, I probably was the one being ridiculous. But, um, you know, he would just get up there and, you know, after I spent, you know, five minutes driving down the field, he would score and, you know, on one play. And I just, and, and I just remember getting riled up about that sort of thing. Um, but you know, not like we were ever fighting about it or <laughs> or any, anything like that. Right, right. But you were kind of even at a young age, you were sort of encountering these unorthodox strategies or strategies that you that differ from what you and you employed or deployed, and so you had to sort of uh, learn to navigate that and, and 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 learn to beat them despite that, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I also I mean, I remember like uh, uh, in NHL there was like this. If you had a player who was good enough, he would just like always score. If you did like you know like left right left shoot or something like that on a breakaway, I forget what the the combo uh, was. But you know that's another thing of like, okay, is that fair? Like, are we just gonna always just go on a breakaway and do this to each other? Like, right. or do we have to pass the puck? Right? Like, what is the what what is the social contract? What is the etiquette uh, here? But we would just go and you know, execute that little maneuver and score because, you know, each one of us could do it to the other, so it was just as fair as not. Yeah, it's like what EA says at the beginning of their games. It's in the game, so if it's, a, if it's an exploit, I guess you guys have to, to use it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so tell me how you got into Magic for the first time at school. Uh, so I was in... Uh, so I got exposed to Magic a couple of times, um, the first time uh, I remember seeing Magic at all, I think I was in ninth grade, I was in English class, and these guys were in the back of the room, uh, and they were sort of playing during class. I'm not sure exactly how they were getting away with this, looking back, uh, but, um, and so they kind of were like trying to get me to play and showing me some of the cards and stuff, 
But I, you know, I, I mean, I had always been like a big uh, baseball card collector, and so you know, Magic at the time didn't really, I didn't really understand what it was, mm-hmm. and so you know, I was like, okay, that's nice. And then actually, I was in um, an academic games uh, group, so we would always uh, we would go to local competitions, but then we would go to nationals uh, every year. Nationals was down in uh, in near Atlanta, Georgia, and. Uh, so it was an overnight thing, and and I was there, and every night those same guys were playing Magic, and I, I think they were playing maybe with beta cards, uh, and they gave me the red deck, and we were playing, you know, like oh, I had the red deck, and one person had the blue deck, the white deck, etc. So like uh, five player, and so they needed a fifth player, and I remember at the time getting uh, a deck that had Iron Star in it, right? It was the red deck, and I, and I was like, what is the, you know, even back then. I was like, what is the purpose of Iron Star? Like, I don't need a life every time I cast a red spell. Like, clearly just need to be, you know, dealing more damage. Like, I, you know... And, and I definitely remember being jealous of a Prodigal Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. So I would always point uh, some of my burn at, uh, at that guy. But he, even then, like, I didn't... Uh, you know, that to me was more like, oh, it's overnight, it's a way thing... You know, that, that didn't really make me a Magic player, which is a shame because, like I said, they were playing with beta cards. Mm-hmm. So I think had I uh, had decided to play there, that would have been definitely good for my collection. But um, uh, it wasn't actually until the summer, uh, so maybe like three, well, probably, uh, let's see here. Yeah, like six months later. What, what year was <laughs> that? What year is that? Um, I started playing uh, in 94, I believe. Let me think. These are These are tough questions, James. Uh, <laughs> I try. <laughs> yeah, it was between my freshman and my sophomore year of high school. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, I, I believe, in the summer of 94 I started playing, like late in the summer, like August. Um, and uh, uh, and Legends had already come and gone, and Revised was, uh, was on the shelves, and The Dark was still... Uh, we could still get the dark, or maybe it was like just coming out or some such, uh, because I remember like the dark being one of the first sets that I played with. Mm-hmm. But I went to the, my mom made me go to this uh, student student leadership program, and I really didn't want to go. And I remember the uh, the acronym uh, to this day because it was slap. And I was like, <laughs> Very are you nice. slap me if, I, if if are you going to slap me if I don't go? That's what I remember saying to her a bunch. Uh, not that not that she would, but. Um, it's just memorable for that reason alone. Uh, uh, and so anyhow, so I went there, and, and one of the, my friends that I bowled with, uh, Ari, you know, we would bowl on Sundays together. Uh, on Monday, he asked me to come to the card store after the training and play Magic, and I was like, eh. On Tuesday, he asked me again, and then on Wednesday, he asked me a third time. And, you know, I mean, I, I figured that, man, if he was so persistent to ask me three times in a row after saying no, you know, no, like maybe there was something to it. And at the time, you know, I don't even think that I connected the fact that I may even played like at the the camp um, months before because, you know, it was just so long in between. But uh, yeah, so I went down to the uh, the card shop, which was called Legends uh, Collectibles, and we bought a starter deck. And I think I got a Chaos Lace was one of my rares. I don't remember the other rare. So not really the uh, uh, the great start to my collection. And uh, yeah, and so we played, and, and really that was uh, that was where I started. You know, I mean, I, I then I took the game and 
uh, I went and taught my sister, and I taught my cousin Nate, and I taught some of my friends, including Evan, uh, and I taught my dad. My dad played magic for quite a while. Um, but yeah, that, that's how that's how it all began. So it just kind of spread. And can I ask, how did did Ari want to get you in the game just because he thought it was such a great game, and he thought, you know, my friend, he has to play it as well, or like, what was the reason behind him asking you? so persistently yeah I, I think that it was I think that it was that magic is kind of mind-blowing right like when you're when you're 14 years old like we were like it was I mean and even really to this day I mean I know maybe now with the you know other iterations and other copies of magic maybe it's, it's not as true but uh, you know magic was so so customizable that you know you really could do anything with the game and i think Ari just appreciated that and you know there was a sense of mystery and maybe now with the internet maybe that doesn't exist anymore but at the time you know i remember i remember being like uh, at lunch and one of my friends would come up to me and be like hey mike did you hear about this card that's free to play and turns all of your lands into swamps it, and uh, and I was like, what? What? What is? What is this? And so I, I think that was Cyclopean Tomb. Um, and, and you know, because there was a misprint and it didn't have a casting cost, right? But just you know, that there was that real sense that that you could do everything. You know, that you could customize exactly. What the game is, and I love the fact that it's still customizable, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I mean, to this day, you know that that is really carried through, you know, and it's one of the things that I still love about the game. Yeah, you mentioned a great point. I mean, there's that sort of unknown element to Magic that was so much a part of our memories in the '90s, and it's not so. It's not the case anymore because of the internet and all these other things. But there was a kind of joy to just not knowing what what cards or what decks your opponents had and just discovering them as you were playing right yeah yeah no that's that's exactly it right this there was really this sense of the unknown right like i i had heard about uh moxes and i had heard about black lotus but i had never seen them mm-hmm. and you know just seeing those cards for the first time right like the first time someone cast balance against me I remember just thinking about how incredibly unfair that card was, and I was like, "Oh, I need to go get this card, mm-hmm. right?" And so that was just, uh, you know, always, always such fun. And really, being a fourteen-year-old at the time, it was just like a great outlet for going and playing in events, you know. And events, and events at the time, and tournaments at the time, also had that sense of unknown. Like it wasn't. You know, everything wasn't as standardized uh, as it is now. Like, I'd play in events that had 70 card minimums, that all the artifacts were restricted. It didn't matter. Like, you know, it's not like um, it's like Black Vice was restricted and Juggernaut was restricted and, you know, Conservator was resti- restricted. Like, every, every artifact, if it was an artifact, it was restricted. I don't, I'm not sure how come this was the rule, but there were just, there were just rules. I played in single elimination tournaments where after the first round they let some people back in. You know, they're like, well, yeah, we said it was single elimination, but for the pairing, we, uh, we're we just going to have some of these people who were just knocked out come back in, which I think I benefited from because I think I had lost. I think I, actually, <laughs> I think I actually lost to Aaron Forsyth 
in the round one and in round two when uh when I first met him because I was at one of those you know uh, wackyish tournaments. Not that yeah. the tournament was wacky, but just you know the the structure was. Uh, yeah, I mean it just was a it was a crazy a crazy time, and even you know like uh, even foreign language cards. Right, we had we had managed to get our hands on some like Italian legends, which was amazing for us uh, because. You know, Evan and I were playing after Legends had been uh, sold out of stores, and so we heard Italian Legends was coming available, and we made sure to get some of that. But even then, we didn't even know what some of the cards did, right? Like, you get, I mean, like, Glyph of Destruction, right? It's just like, I mean, it's already a crazy card in English. And so, uh, you know, that card in Italian, when you're just trying to, like, decipher what it does, like, who knows? Who knows? I mean, what rules were you even playing by, really? Right. So it sounded like you guys had house rules, and even the tournaments themselves had house rules and kind of weird things as people were kind of figuring out in this sort of wild west of magic at the time. That's uh, Yeah. Okay. And so you learned magic from your friend. You taught your family. What, was that the moment when you were just completely hooked on magic and you just started playing it nonstop? Like, what was the point where you just it just kind of took over your life? Because I imagine it must have at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember thinking. Um, I remember thinking at one point, I'm like, oh, I don't really have any friends who don't play magic. Like that was, like, if you wanted, if if I was going to be friends with somebody, it's not because I would exclude people who weren't, who didn't play magic as my friends. It just I was playing so much magic that the only time I had free, I would spend with people who were playing magic because. Uh, that's what I wanted to be doing was playing magic with my free time and so what this meant of course was I ended up with a lot of magic playing friends uh, and so I, I mean I, I really think just you know after that uh, in that summer I learned how to play um, you know basically then my sophomore junior and senior years of high school and into my first few years of college I was playing a lot of magic during those uh, five six seven years yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, just just all the time. I mean, every weekend, going to a tournament. You know, finding another event. You know, a big a big moment for me was getting my driver's license. Um, getting my driver's license meant all of a sudden we weren't dependent on my parents to be able to give us to, a ride to a tournament. It meant that instead of just going to tournaments and events that were within like twenty minutes of my house, I could go you know drive into Ohio. Right, which is maybe uh, two, three hours away. Right? Oh, I could, you know, eventually we would drive to like New York City uh, for an event, you know, which was like six to eight hours away. Right? So uh, getting my driver's license was a huge, huge step forward in terms of my ability to just keep playing more magic. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That kind of gave you the freedom to just be where you needed to be. And uh, so you said every week, right? You were basically uh, playing in some kind of tournament, either locally or, or elsewhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, like when I was in high school, uh, I typically would have a first period study hall. I'd be playing Magic during that unless I had some like homework to finish up or whatnot. Uh, and then during lunch, we'd play Magic. And after school, we'd play Magic 
uh, and then we you typically we'd go to uh, that same Legends card shop where I learned how to play uh, and play Magic there. Like he had like some uh, at first just shelf space, and then later on he got a bigger store and so uh, some table space uh, to play Magic. And so that's what I would do during the week. And then on the weekend on um, on Saturday or Sunday or both, I would go to. Uh, events around town. In fact, you know, like I said, my friend who taught me, uh, I met him through bowling. Like, I actually even gave up bowling because bowling was on Sunday mornings, and that often would conflict with magic tournaments. <laughs> so, you know, I would be picking Priorities. a magic tournament, yeah. and yeah, I mean, you can't you know, you can't do everything. Right. So right. So you were you were really focused on magic, and you had said that you just said that you learned how to play magic at Legends. What were there particular players there or situations there that made you level up that helped you level up your game well i mean i think the first thing and the first and foremost was just the amount of magic uh that we got to play there uh one thing that definitely helped me get way better at magic was uh when we heard of booster draft like booster draft was not a thing at you know uh and then all of a sudden it was like oh hey there's this way to to use your packs differently. You don't have to just open them. You can booster draft. Mm -hmm. But we thought that you only booster drafted with two packs, not three packs. Uh, and so we would do two pack booster drafts. Uh, and so that actually really makes you good at uh, booster draft really quickly because you know getting 23 playable cards out of 30 uh, is really challenging, right? right? Especially if you look back at some of those older sets. Um, and so because of that, like that was really a big leveling up experience was doing all these two-pack booster drafts and still and still being able to put together um, good decks. So around uh, what year was that when you guys started learning about and doing booster drafts? Um, well, it's easier for me to say which set it was rather than the year. Okay, sure, that works too. Uh, uh, I, I remember this being like Mirage Vision's Weatherlight was really when uh, we, we were do starting with these drafts. Um, you know, we had played some sealed deck because, uh, like Gray Matter, I think was the name of the uh, the organizers had come in and they would run some uh, local sealed deck events. Uh, but we really didn't have a lot of experience with limited, uh, particularly much until uh, you know around the time of Mirage Visions Weatherlight. Right. So, was there something that immediately drew you to limited as you? were exposed to it for the first time because up up until then you were playing constructed so uh what was i mean did, did you feel it was more skill testing did you feel that it was a more better efficient better budgetary use of just opening up packs like what was it specifically i'm just trying to understand uh to me the thing i loved about limited was how each experience was unique uh i, I just love the uh, the feeling of opening a booster and looking through it and figuring out what you're going to take and what the person next to you is going to take and what does that affect what you should take then you know I, I really love those strategic decisions and then you know trying to figure out which cards really uh, synergize well with uh, the deck that you're drafting um, I like that limited is a, a really I mean a little bit more straightforward of a game you know I mean especially now if you look at like legacy or vintage you know, it's not uh, maybe what I would call bread and butter magic, right? Of just attacking and blocking, casting uh, creatures. Um, and, and limited always has a lot of bread and butter magic, right? It's all it's about you know drafting a solid mana curve and drafting some good removal and and using that removal well. Um, and so 
I mean, to me, I just enjoy that straightforward, like the the fact that it's unique, but it's still like a straightforward puzzle. I guess uh, is what I've, has always appealed to me about uh, limited. Okay, and you you had just mentioned some things that now in 2016 we all sort of understand as canonicals, things like uh, mana curve and you know you know color selection, things like that. But did you understand exactly all of these things as you were going through the your your booster drafts for the first time, like for the first year or so? Like, what was it like back then? Just trying to understand. Uh, no, I didn't understand any of that. Um, what was it? It was. It, it's hard to. It's hard to explain what it was. It. It was like we were all all going through this cool experience together, right? Of just okay, what what cards are good, right? And it's just through that, you know, that iteration and and playing and playing so much Magic that you sort of start to understand. Oh. Okay, I, I do need more two drops. I just, you know, this eight mana creature. I just never cast him. I can't. I can't be playing these eight mana creatures anymore. Um, oh, I really do want to trim my deck down to the minimum number of cards, right? I mean, that was. I, I remember for me. I mean, this was more from constructed, but like, you know, for the first couple months of playing, I was always playing like a hundred card deck because I would just, you know, I loved playing white and green. And I would get new white and green cards, and I would be like, oh, Thicket Basilisk. How can I not play Thicket Basilisk? Oh, Lure. Lure's good on Thicket Basilisk. Oh, Sarah Angel. Sarah Angel's awesome. <laughs> you know, and just that, that like, you know, I was a kid in a candy store. Um, and, you know, my, the, my friend had to sit me down and be like, no, you can only play 60 cards. Choose your best 60 cards. You know, and in Limited, that was that same thing of, you know, you, you wanna you wanna play all of the cards, but you just have to figure out. Okay, like building a solid mana curve and getting. I mean, even back then, I knew that removal was good, right? I mean, because that was just you know, like if it could kill Singer Vampire, it could kill a fly. You know, and flying was really flying was incredible. I mean, one of the playing in some of the older older limited formats, there was just a lot of like walls and a lot of toughness on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so having a flyer that could get through was just, you know, amazing. And having a fireball was amazing because the game would go long. And so you'd just be sitting around and have like 12 and 13 men out and you draw, you know, finally draw your fireball and that would win you the game, you know, so. Yeah, uh, so it sounds like there was no guide to how to play magic you you guys just sort of learned it through experience and trial and error and and yeah just 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 trial and error and playing lots of games right yeah totally i mean i remember one of the big things was every month the duelist would come and it was like this window into a whole nother universe right um and in one of the duelists i mean this was uh there was the pro i think pro tour 2 was the pro tour that was uh a sealed deck and so they had published the the top two uh, the top two finalists. They had published their decks that they had played in the finals. And so my friend Evan and I we built the decks that were published in the Duelist, right? And they were they were uh, limited decks. I, f I forget if they were draft or sealed. Uh, and then we would like play them against each other, right? To like figure out like, oh, okay, like you know, why are these guys so good? Like, why are they on the pro tour? Like, how do we? How do we go about winning? So that was always fun, and I always—that was actually one of the first times I really recall being like, "Wow, I'm really good at this game," because I actually beat uh, my friend Evan, who who went on to be a lawyer uh, and graduated from Duke, so you know, really smart guy. Uh, I beat him 10-0 uh, with the decks, 
And then, so we were just thought like, oh, that the deck I'm playing must just be a lot better. But then we swapped decks, and I beat him 10-0 again. Oh, so, interesting. Right, yeah. And so, like, when that happened, I was like, no oh. Yeah. You know, and like I said, like, uh, like, Evan and I just always were basically equal at things. Typically, he was even slightly better, right? Uh, and so just having one of us ace the other one was, like, unheard of. Right. right? So I was like, oh, wow, maybe... You know, this magic game uh, really clicks with me. Right. And he wasn't going to those tournaments and playing the same amount as you had, right? Uh, no, he, I mean, Evan, eventually Evan would uh, fall off in how much he was playing. But at the time, like, Evan and I, I mean, he was the person I was playing against the most, you know. I mean, he was playing a little bit less than I was maybe because uh, if I was playing during lunch or going after, like, we didn't go to the same school. Um, so, sure, so maybe he was still I was playing, playing a yeah, yeah he, he was still playing. He was definitely a you know a pretty active player at the time. Okay, so you beat him 10-0 with one deck and then 10-0 with the other deck, and that's when you sort of thought to yourself that you've arrived or that you're you're now better than your, your rival that you've been rivals with for the past couple of years in, in a good way. Uh, but uh, what happened after that? Like, you went... I, I'm trying to understand, like, when you got onto the... The map, so to speak, like when you actually, uh, you know, started winning Grand Prix or like bigger events. I'm trying to understand that. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So Evan, uh, so Evan was actually the first one to qualify for the Pro Tour, and he qualified for uh, the Pro Tour in New York. Um, and I'll call it Pro Tour Rye because it was held in Rye, New York. Uh, and so he was in the juniors division. And so my my friend Ari. Uh, Evan and I, we all decided to take a road trip. And this was right at the end of my senior year of high school. So we, we all got in the car and went to New York to sort of root him on. I remember doing a booster draft at like midnight and beating uh, Mike Long in the first round. Right. So that was another moment of like, oh, wow, I just beat Mike Long. Like, you know, and at the time he was, you know, one of the greatest players in the game. And so it was just another one of those sort of light bulb, like, wow, maybe maybe I do have what it takes. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so then really that summer, uh, you know, I got pretty active in playing in uh, Pro Tour qualifiers and uh, regionals and that whole, um, uh, that whole deal. And by the fall, I had qualified, I uh, had already qualified at a Pro Tour qualifier for Pro Tour Chicago, uh, which Randy Bueller would end up winning that Pro Tour. Um, but uh, we would, uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon uh, University, and so uh, I met up with, like Randy and I met at the finals of an event, and we exchanged contact information, and so he was like, oh, and, hey, I'm getting ready to go to Grand Prix Toronto, um, if you want to come in my car, you, you know, you're more than welcome to, and come and practice with us. So uh, that's really when I got together with Randy and Eric Lauer, and Dan Silberman, um, and the four of us all took a road trip up to Grand Prix Toronto, uh, where I made top eight. So that was the first time I made top eight at a Grand Prix. Now that Grand Prix, I think making top eight there, I think there was maybe three hundred people, you know, in the in the event. I actually lost to uh, Brian Kibler uh, in the top eight. Uh, of that event, and I think Brian went on to win that Grand Prix. Um, but I always, I also remember, sort of between um, 
between the end of the Swiss rounds and the top eight, Brian and I went and grabbed some food, and we were sort of talking about our decks and how our decks worked, and uh, I think I gave him a little too much, uh, a little too much help, help. <laughs> you know. And then we were paired, which I don't, I don't think we knew that we were going to be paired at the time. Right, right. We were you were just excited. sharing information. And just, yeah, just we were just talking. We were, we were both just excited. You know, yeah. we were both, you know, seventeen or eighteen year old kids who were just, you know, top eight of the Grand Prix. So it was, it was more out of the excitement. But I always regret sharing that, uh, sharing those little inf- that tidbit of information with them because, you know, maybe. Maybe my green-white Morrow deck would have won the uh, the Grand Prix otherwise. Who knows? Oh, that's a sign of a true competitor, man. When you look back and you're like, oh, I could have done that a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was uh, you know, a little under 20 years ago. So, yeah. uh, But I still remember. <laughs> it, it's funny sometimes how we have these photographic memories of things that happened back then that were so key, but we can't remember sometimes like where we put our keys like somewhere. You right. Know? Yeah, if you ask me what I, right, if you ask me what I did, uh, you know, not this weekend, but the weekend before, it'd be like, ah, that's a tough question. But 20 years ago, uh, talking about how, uh, how my Morrow Miss Moon Griffin deck worked, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that I remember. Right, uh, right. No, it's true. It's true. The first Pro Tour I played on was Pro Tour Chicago. Uh, and my first round opponent was to Tommy Hovey, who, you know, once again, another, another great player. He hadn't won two Pro Tours yet, but he had won one. And I remember... Uh, he was playing a, a squandered resources stasis deck, so he would get out squandered resources. Maybe he had Howling Mine, I forget. Uh, and then he would get an extra use out of each one of his islands uh, to pay for stasis. You know, he could tap the island and then he could sacrifice the island. So he would get. Uh, but I remember beating him because I just kept stone raining all of his islands. And this would eventually, like, he'd get out stasis, but he'd only be able to keep it around for a couple of turns. And so it, I just. Uh, you know, it's another thing of like, okay, here's my first Pro Tour match. If you ask me what my, you know, in the middle of my Pro Tour history, it's like, I don't, you know, I sometimes I meet people who are like, oh, I played you on the Pro Tour, and, you know, it just is... Uh, just kind of a blank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just kind of like, oh, yep, yep, you know, and if they re- if they start describing the game, then it usually comes back to me, but... Uh, right, right, you know, game it's state just and board state, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, I can't tell you what my life total was when I won the game, right? Like, it's not... Not quite, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so going back a little bit, what was it like to to interact with and and work with Randy for the first time? Like you guys were just kids, and he invited you to go to Toronto in his car. But what was he like as a player? Like, what was it like just interacting with him? You know, one of the things I always have appreciated about Randy is he would, I mean, he would really want, uh, he would really work to win. You know, like when a, when a format was new, uh, often Randy would be the one who was, you know, struggling with it the most. But by the time the format had sort of developed and matured, uh, Randy would be a powerhouse, right? And, and, all, and I, I think it's always been one of his strengths with Constructed is he would just keep working with that same Constructed deck over and over and over again you know, gaining these small percentages, gaining these edges, and just learning the nuances of the deck or of the format, you know, and it's what's made him, what made him such a strong, constructed player, you know. I mean, me, on the other hand, like I said, my favorite format was limited, and so I always enjoyed the newness and the freshness, and, you know, I've never been as concerned about picking up the small percentage points, but, you know, I always want to be making sure that I'm on the the strong strategic line uh, from the beginning, 
right? So uh, we, we kind of contrasted in styles in that way. But that, I mean, to me, that's one of the things I always it made me appreciate it even more because I just could see how much more there was to gain, uh, you know, with practice and with iteration and with, uh, you know, thinking, thinking things through uh, more. So it sounded like Randy was a grinder before the term grinder was even invented. Like he was really workmanlike in terms of uh, wanting to improve with constructed, right? Oh, totally. I mean, Randy was the uh, he was the organizer of our playtest group at Carnegie Mellon. You know, he was the one who would uh, uh, you know let us know what events were coming up. I mean, Randy's always been uh, you know very driven, right? And and so. To me, I, I think that just it meshed so well into Eric, right, and just uh, the guys we were playing Magic with. You know, the fact that Randy uh, would set up sessions, and he'd actually be the one to coordinate, like, oh, if people were coming in uh, to play test, you know, uh, with our team, he, he would always be the one organizing those type of activities. Um, yeah, I mean, and like you said, I mean, Randy would... You know, he would know that the Pro Tour qualifier schedule uh, back when he was trying to qualify, and you know, make sure that he was hitting the the PTQs every weekend. Uh, now, of course, then he didn't need to anymore once he won the Pro Tour. Right. But uh, but then it sort of switched to becoming knowing the Grand Prix schedule, and he'd be like, "Hey, Mike, I'm going to Vienna next weekend. Do you want to go?" He's like, "I found this good flight, you know, for only three hundred dollars to Vienna." You know, and I'm like, ah. You know, I had to I had to give at least some lip service to my uh, going to college classes. <laughs> yeah, you know, but what? yeah, it just sounded like Randy was a really great, and and still is a great ambassador for the game, and he's really just like hooked up to all this information so that he could tell you that you needed to go, you could take this flight to go to Vienna, and it, it's almost like we just talked to him. You you knew what was going on, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, and I, and I love the work that he's done with like the Community Super League and the Vintage Super League and the the, uh, the other Super Leagues that he ran also, right? And I, I just think that, you know, he, he really just has such a commitment to the game and like you said, is just a great ambassador for the game. Right, right. And that, that trip you guys took to uh, to that GP, was that the first time you really worked together with others on a on a quote-unquote team? Yeah, that was definitely the first time. I mean, before then, it was, you know, it was just my group of friends. Uh, we did have Team Shirts, Team Shlomo, uh, but that was not uh, <laughs> that was not in any official capacity. That was more just us having some fun. Uh, but yeah, no, Grand Prix Toronto was the first time where, you know, I sort of went outside the inner circle of people I played Magic with, uh, you know, since the beginning to to go and take a road trip. You know, like I had known Randy for maybe a month or so but when we went on that road trip. So what was that like? I mean, it must be a little bit... I mean, I know some players never quite do that where they leave their inner circle and and, and go into something, you know, a very purpose-driven team with other players from maybe different parts of the the country. Um, what, what was it like? Did you fit in naturally from, from the get-go? Yeah, I, I'm pretty good at fitting in. Uh, I think that one of the things that we all had in common was um, we're really terrible with directions. So it meant that <laughs> it was a really long time to get home from Toronto because Eric had the map and then I had the map. And I think maybe by the time Dan had the map was when we finally actually started heading back towards Pittsburgh. 
Um, so that was one thing that we had in common. Uh, but, you know, to answer your question seriously, uh, I, I mean, it's always, it's always been such a privilege. Uh, I mean, one of the things I love about Magic is just how inclusive it is. And I just always really uh, have been fortunate to surround myself with a good group of people. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, between starting with like Evan and Ari and my cousin Nate Heiss, uh, you know, to getting on to Team CMU with uh, Randy and Aaron Forsyth and uh, Eric Lauer, right? And, and I still work with Aaron and Eric, you know, to this day, right? And these are guys I've known now for, you know, coming up on 20 years. Um, I, I just think that's always been a, a place I've been really fortunate and you know that's and we've always had the shared love of, of the game that we play and that's always made it uh, a little bit easier you know you always have something to talk about um, you know no, no matter how ever the rest of your life is going uh, you, you always have magic uh, in common so that's always really great sure and as part of that team what were your what, what kind of what kind of processes did you guys have for testing and for... Because I know teams now can be very... Like in Modern Magic 2016 can be very methodical in how they discuss and 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 test and prepare for things. Like what, what was your guys' uh, kind of process for, for all that? Well, I mean, one of the, uh, for Constructed, usually uh, Randy would show up with a sleeve of decks that, uh, that he had built. And then Eric would get out the little pieces of paper and start making changes to Randy's decks. Um, and then I'd be playing, you know, I would typically have one or two decks built that I was uh, testing for the upcoming event. Same thing with Dan. Um, Andrew Cunio would randomly show up and he'd be playing some wacky deck. Um, so we would just play against Andrew. Uh, and so it kind of, like Randy was definitely the, the influencing factor and the organizer. And like I said, he would show up with like, you know, quote unquote stock decks, like he would have uh, uh, bid on the internet, which typically was Usenet at the time, you know, looking at tournament reports and building some decks from some good events. Um, and, and so that's, you know, what we would use as our basis. Uh, but then also we would just be scouring through card lists and brainstorming, you know, after we were done playtesting, um, you know, we would typically go out to, to eat at like, you know, 2 a.m. at a diner. Right, and we just keep talking about magic. You know, the deck that I played for the first Pro Tour, uh, we built in the car on the drive from Pittsburgh to Chicago, about an eight-hour drive. And but the thing about it was, is you say you say like, oh, like that's pretty lucky that you know I made top thirty-two uh, with the deck, and to have built a deck like the night before and have it work out so well. But at the same time, I think it was just you know we were playing so much and preparing so much. Uh, you know, above and beyond what other people were doing at the time, that we were bound to to make uh, strong choices and sort of understand what cards mattered and, and what mattered in the uh, in the game. Sure, it wasn't luck because you guys had experience and I might argue muscle memory that that caused you to 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 be able to be in a spot where you could be successful with a quote unquote overnight deck or something like that, right? Like it was everything building up to it. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Okay. And, of course, you've had a ton of great finishes since then, but I also want to ask you about you being on one of the most prolific teams in competitive magic. That was when you were with Gary Weiss and, and Scott Johns. Uh, what was it like teaming up with Gary and Scott? Can you just give the listener a bit of context as well, like when you started 
falling in with them and how you guys started the team? Yeah, well, the circumstances, yeah. So I had, um, I wasn't doing so well in college, and I had gone to Canada to Gary, uh, to Gary Wise. He invited me up to, uh, he was living in Toronto. Um, and so I had gone up to, to visit with him, and I spent maybe, I don't know, two or three weeks there, you know, um, playing a lot of Magic, hanging out and whatnot. Uh, and he insists that while we were there, that at some point I agreed to team with him uh, at the upcoming Team Pro Tour. And I don't actually recall having ever agreed to this. Uh, but <laughs> at the same time, I was happy to uh, I was happy to do it, and it would work out. But of course, I mean, that left the matter of who our third player was going to be. And, and Gary had suggested Scott Johns. And Scott, I mean, as hard as this is to believe, now that, you know, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, I've been on the Pro Tour forever ago. Scott actually, Scott and I actually didn't overlap on the Pro Tour in any way. Uh, before then, he had actually taken a break when I had started playing. So I didn't really know much about Scott. But I, I really took uh, Gary on his word that Scott had, um, uh, you know, that he would be a good teammate and, you know, he, he would... Uh, play well and represent us well, and so uh, you know Gary really thought that it would be a good, a good match. So I was happy to I was happy to agree to this. Uh, you know because of the distance, you know me living in Pittsburgh, uh, Gary in uh, Canada, and Scott in California. We we also we would travel to there were a couple team Grand Prix uh, before each Pro Tour, and so we all committed to travel to that Grand Prix and play together as a team. Uh, in the, the I don't remember us doing particularly well at the uh, uh, at that Grand Prix, but um, but no matter. I mean, we definitely were meshing well as a team, and I was fortunate enough to still have uh, some really strong uh, teammates back in Pittsburgh, um, like uh, Aaron Forsyth and uh, Andrew Cuneo and Andrew Johnson at the time, and so we we would still get to be able to do a lot of uh, Team Sealed and Team Rochester draft practices. Right, and then I sort of brought the strategies that we had developed to Gary and Scott um, at the Pro Tour. Uh, so now, of course, the other thing that was really uh, interesting about our team dynamic was I think Gary and Scott had a falling out over some of their uh, own team situation uh, that I wasn't involved in. I wasn't on their team uh, at all in, in terms of like their, you know, some larger collective playtesting teams had happened for just general pro tours and and they had some falling out and so I remember Gary and Scott just kind of, I mean really Gary was m more upset because he had been wronged uh, but they were not in a great, in a great space uh, in terms of like, you know, mental happiness friendship land so I'm thinking to myself what have I gotten you know what mess have I gotten myself into <laughs> uh, but fortunately you know that didn't really uh, maybe that anger translated into a good way in our uh, in, in the event itself because we really I mean we just kept winning uh, you know the strategies that we had developed were working and you know Gary is a really great uh, Gary and Scott both are really great teammates and you know they'll stand up for you they'll stand up for each other and you know they, they were really able to put aside whatever those differences were uh, and and we did you know I mean we couldn't have done any better so that's amazing you kind of reminded me the way you described it kind of reminds me of a, a rock band where there might be team members who have a little bit of 
clashes of opinion, but they still perform well when it comes to the the actual events or the big stage, as it were. Right. Well, I, I think yeah, I, I think that being able to focus and being able to channel that uh, energy into you know doing the best you have with the cards uh, that that you know the the decks that we built and the decks that we drafted, I think was a, a super positive thing. And did you join them because you? Well, I guess it sounded like Gary kind of. <laughs> roped you bamboozled in, me? Yes, he bamboozled me. He yes. bamboozled you, right. Um, but but ultimately, it was great for you, right? I mean, looking back, because I, I would imagine you, you leveled up as a, as a player as a result, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I was thrilled. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it was super meaningfully... One of the things I love about Magic and love about uh, the Pro Tour is I really just, you know, developmentally as a person, I really learned how to become a good teammate through playing magic and and really team magic, right? And just what it meant to, uh, you know, go and play through an event with these, uh, with Gary and Scott, and later on a lot of other teammates. And when we're talking about you know Randy and Eric and Nate, and just all, all of these uh, all of these people that I've had the pleasure to to play magic with and work with, you know, you just learn so much about collaborating with people and sharing success. And, you know, I mean, to have it then culminate in winning a Pro Tour, which, you know, was one of my initial goals for when I got it onto the Pro Tour was to win. Uh, that was just uh, fantastic. Was that the best Magic-related memory you've had, which was winning the Pro Tour, or was there something else? Uh, that was definitely that was definitely a top memory. Uh, I, I think uh, making top eight of uh, Worlds uh, was another great memory, you know, especially because my parents actually, uh, the world was in Toronto, Canada, uh, and my parents actually were coming up for the weekend, and so, like, they get in on whatever it is, like, Friday night or Saturday, and I get to tell them that, like, yay, I, you know, because cell phones, uh, I didn't have a cell phone back then, um, and so I get to tell them, like, you know, in person that I made top eight at the world championship, and I had the chance to be a world championship. I remember that being really a uh, really sweet uh, memory. Of course, I didn't lose in the first round, so there's some bitterness there too, I suppose. But right. uh, that's the competitor coming out, <laughs> right? Right. This is like, oh, I only made top eight. You know, my goal was to win. Well, uh, w w what are you gonna do? Sure. Gonna it's do? like getting silver at the Olympics. You never, you never appreciate it until later on. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And th and that's something that I mean, you know. Uh, I remember in some of my air travels, I would be on, uh, I'd be on planes, and you know, just getting the chance to talk to people from all different walks of life as you know we were flying, uh, and just you know, one of the one of the gentlemen was talking about how culturally uh, America is is set up to be a very like first place is the only place type of mentality, but that's just not uh, that's not true globally. And to me, I, I really got to appreciate, uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, you're not going to win every event that you play in, so you better be enjoying the journey uh, at the same time. You know, and yes, celebrate more when you win, but make sure to be able to shake hands with your opponent and wish them a good game and appreciate the game that you've played, you know, even when, uh, even when they're the ones uh, advancing on the event. Would you say that you've always been very much... Uh uh, an emphasizer of sportsmanship. Uh, yeah, I I think that it's just one of the. I mean, I've just grown up playing games, and it, it's 
you know, smiling and wishing your opponent good game and, and genuinely meaning it and wishing them good luck and genuinely meaning that. I, I think that it'll uh, it, it makes such a makes such a difference. You know, I mean, in some of these stories and in, in some of my experiences, the person that you're sitting across the table from now, like they may be your teammate in the future, you know, or a friend of one of your teammates or whatnot. And so, you know, genuinely making a connection with them. Uh, you know, it just makes such a difference, uh, you know, to them and to you. And so, you know, it's just more fun. I mean, magic's about fun. And uh, being able to legitimately have fun, you know, it, it, it's hugely meaningful. Yeah, that's, that's what it's all about, for sure. Now I kind of want to ask you about the Hall of Fame. I know we're jumping ahead a few years, but can you tell me a little bit about what it was like knowing that you had made it into the Hall of Fame? Uh, I mean, for me, the Hall of Fame was very validating. Uh, you know, like one of the goals I had as a player was I wanted to become world champion because I always felt that, you know, as a pursuit, saying that you're the world champion of this hobby was something that, you know, immediately I could be talking to anybody and that, that gives it immediate uh, legitimacy, immediate recognition. And so while I had only uh, made top eight of uh, the world championships and didn't become the world champion itself, uh, the Hall of Fame really has become uh, that talking. When I talk to people, you know, that's something that can bring up of saying, hey, this is something I did while I was uh, in college, after I graduated from college, and, you know, I, I've made the Magic Hall of Fame. Like, I'm one of the best, you know, uh, 35 players uh, to have ever played this game and and to me then you know being a fan of baseball and being a fan of football right they just have such prestigious Hall of Fames knowing that for as long as magic exists that uh, I'm gonna be one of these people who are in the Hall of Fame I mean that that to me uh, had a lot of meaning you know it was very special and one of the things that made it extra special for me was, you know, being in there with some of the the guys that I've been teammates with uh, over the years, either teammates in practice, right, like Randy Bueller, or uh, teammates uh, in the Pro Tours themselves, like Gary Wise. You know, it, to me, that that's just, uh, you know, one of the things I love about Magic is, is the gathering piece of it. And so ha having my friends in there and having my peers in there uh, was super super validating oh definitely so knowing that over the years the hall of fame there's always been discussions about who should and shouldn't be in the hall of fame was there any ever was there ever any question for you whether you would make it into the hall of fame or not at the time uh yeah i mean i i didn't get in on the first uh hall of fame ballot i was eligible for although i did receive a nice uh a nice percentage of the votes um you know at the time, there were a, a huge list of uh, worthy candidates, and so it didn't surprise me that I, that I wasn't uh, inducted in my first year of eligibility. Uh, but at the same time, I did well enough that year that the following year, I felt I had a really good chance. Like I, like to me, um, the year I did get in, uh, I, I felt like that was a make-or-break year in terms of getting into the Hall of Fame. I was working at Wizards at the time, so I wasn't really going to be adding any, uh, you know, top finishes to my resume, uh, to my Hall of Fame resume. But I did, I did know that, 
I had a pretty good chance based on who else was eligible. And, you know, I mean, I've always considered myself to be a pretty good player. Uh, but when you're looking, you know, when you're talking about Hall of Fame, you're talking the best of the best. And I wasn't sure. You know, I mean, I kind of feel like uh, in some ways I'm a second tier Hall of Famer. Right. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not maybe third tier. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not as good as John or Kai, uh, you know, but that that's OK. I mean, that's I mean, you know, I, I was very competitive with them. I beat them at Pro Tours uh, all the time. Uh, and so and I was a little bit more of a specialist. You know, I, I always really excelled more in limited and draft and constructed was never uh Never as much my thing. I, I back when uh, back when we had the uh, Elo rating system, uh, I always laughed with Randy Bueller because I considered us part of the three hundred club, where my limited rating was three hundred points better than my constructed rating. And even though Randy and I were teammates, his constructed rating was three hundred points better than his limited rating. So you would think that we would sort of have a, a more uh, synergistic relationship and we both would raise our ratings and maybe we did but uh it really just shows that we were very different uh, styles of player mm -hmm. but at the same time it seemed that they recognize or not they they being uh your peers recognize that you are one of the greatest limited players of all time so despite being more focused in that direction you still got in based on that is that right yeah, I mean, I you know, I have five Pro Tour top eights and a Pro Tour win, so I'm certainly, uh, you know, I was certainly very good at Magic uh, at one point in my life, um, and it would be interesting to me to me now with the split Pro Tours that are limited and constructed, how how that would sort of you know change my behavior and change my practice. I mean, I had success at constructed, um, uh, no doubt about it, but. You know, because there were, there was just solely limited pro tours and solely constructed pro tours. Maybe that's uh, didn't give me enough motivation to really focus on constructed uh, and become as good at constructed as as uh, my potential let me be. Right, but at the same time, I remember you saying the reason why you like limited is that it feels more like a maybe for lack of a better term, pure form of magic, where there's a lot of skills being put to the test. And, you know, whether it's combat or card evaluation or creating something on the fly, that to me seems like a very tough skill. And I think a lot of players are still wrestling with how to do that effectively today, right? Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, I, I just played in the Eldritch Moon, uh, uh, well, employee pre-release, and... It's like, oh, you open up those cards and they're all fresh and new. And once again, you're thrown into that same, you know, age-old puzzle of, all right, here are the cards I have. Like, what is my opponent's going to have? What am I going to do to make my, my deck better than it is, right? And where, where can I gain an advantage? And that, that was, that's true, you know, this past, uh, uh, this past week for, for people. And that's been true, you know, back when I started playing you know, with the dark and, you know, Ice Age, you know, I mean, that, that, that's, it's just a huge thing. Uh, and it's something that I really enjoy. Right. And Mike, now that you're, you've been in the Pro Tour for a while, every year I always see a lot of discourse and conversation around who should 
make it, who isn't, or uh, things like that, without going to specific people, I'm wondering if you've developed a specific criteria list for who should be in the Hall of Fame versus not. Like, for example, you had mentioned that you had been in uh, Top 8 X Pro Tours and you won one of them, or like GP Top 8s and things like that. Does that, is it purely based on that, you think, uh, based on your personal opinion, or are there other factors at, at work when it comes to determining who should and shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame? Well, I, I, for me personally, I feel like my criteria has, has shifted over the years. Uh, as I've moved farther away from the Pro Tour and knowing the players uh, of the Pro Tour, I mean, now I follow the coverage more from, you know, from watching Twitch uh, than when I was back as a player. Back when I was a player, often my impressions of the uh, of people who were worth uh, worthy of the Hall of Fame was from my personal experience with them. I mean, I, of course, I used the stats to to narrow down that list. But uh, when I was really coming down to the voting portion of it, uh, it wasn't as stats based. Now with the the stats having uh, sort of matured right, as the Pro Tour is. Uh, 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 gone on. Uh, I, I definitely look at the stats uh, a little, a little bit closer and a little more intently. Right. I mean, for me personally, I weigh the Pro Tour uh, finishes the most. You know, I mean, Grand Prix finishes. I definitely um, care about. But you know, if you if you presented somebody who's won ten Grand Prix and never made a top eight of a Pro Tour, like that's just not somebody I would consider. Uh, you know, to me, the Pro Tour is the biggest stage, mm -hmm. and looking at the Pro Tour top eights, looking at the Pro Tour wins, um, and, and you know, I mean, I I'm someone who looks at the the player's contribution to the game in other areas. You know, I mean, for me, uh, like uh, like Brom, who who got inducted, I think he was inducted by one vote or two votes. I mean, a very close vote. Uh, to me, the fact that he contributed uh, so much to Magic in his home country. You know, with the organizing and, and with you know building the player base there, and to me that's very meaningful because in a lot of ways I see the Pro Tour as sort of the culmination of your uh, of your journey as a Magic player. And so, you know, when I know about those uh, type of uh, type of contributions, I tend to factor them in. enjoyed this episode of Humans of Magic. I would love to get feedback from you on how to make the show better. You can find me on Twitter at James underscore Sue. That's James underscore H-S-U. Please also check out my website at writtenbyjames.com and drop me a line. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.